I'm truly grateful for the invitation to be here, the opportunity to study with you. Um, I pray that it's going to be beneficial for all of us together. Uh, it's an important topic. Uh, it's, a, it's an emotional topic, and uh, it cuts close to our hearts and our lives and involves the people that are nearest to us. It's an important subject, and we want to be careful how we read and study these things together. And so thank you for the invitation and the opportunity, and I've prayed that, uh, that I will do uh, work that will be useful and helpful and, and true to the Lord's intent. If you notice the picture of me on the flyer, you're already laughing. I look, I don't know, I don't know if I look scared or depressed. And the picture was taken because I was coming here. It's at, at request, I had that picture taken. But I guarantee you that I'm not as scared or as depressed as that picture might indicate. This is a good day, and I'm grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for that. In Matthew chapter 19, and you can turn there if you'd like, but in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus was discussing the laws of marriage and subsequent divorce and, and potential remarriage, there was a strong reaction among the disciples. Uh, let's read a little bit and, and pick up just this idea. Uh, in verse 9, we'll read the larger text later, but in verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They heard Jesus' words and concluded that this is a scary proposition. This is not something that should be entered lightly. In fact, this may be something that we avoid. It's better not to marry. It's better not to marry, if we understand what they're saying here, it's better not to marry than to marry and divorce and either be single or commit adultery. Both of those things were, were uh, uh, not good outcomes. They said it's better not to marry Whatever we learn, we need to understand that it's serious and it's significant and, it, and we need to give thought and be honest with ourselves so that when we are put in a position to make choices, that we're careful to make good choices and spiritual choices. Jesus goes on because he really disagreed with them on it's better not to marry. And he compromised kind of their tone a little bit and said in verse 11, he said to them, all cannot accept this saying. And I think that saying that he's talking about is the one they said. Not everybody can do what you're suggesting. Not everybody can accept this idea, just stay single. It's safer that way. Not all can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, accept it. So he says, that is, that is an option, not to marry. And if you are afraid that your marriage may not be what it ought to be and turn out badly, then better not to marry. And Jesus is going along with them. He said, but you can't impose that on everybody. And certainly we understand and expect Jesus to say that you can't impose that on anybody because from the beginning, 
The woman was made for the man, and the intent and the command of God was to be fruitful and multiply. God intends for us, generally speaking, it's not a requirement of every disciple of Christ, but generally speaking, in this world of men and women and human beings living before God, the intent is to marry, and that marriage needs to be permanent. And there's the resolution that if we marry, we need to be faithful, we need to be steadfast, we need to be true to the promise that we're making. And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, in, in these series of lessons. I'm not going to explore the intricacies of some of the debates that we've had, uh, even among brethren, about uh, when can a person remarry, under what circumstances, and who has a right to remarry. I'm not going to revisit that. I will reread the the critical verse in this paragraph that touches that is verse 9. Jesus said, I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so there is one exception. There is one uh, uh, opportunity in this text for a person to remarry, and that is if the spouse has been put away because of their unfaithfulness to the marriage vow. Otherwise, divorce itself is sin. Otherwise, divorce and remarriage is additional sin in adultery. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that, and uh, those matters can be studied more carefully later. My purpose and my point in this series is to say, okay, that being the case, if marriage is for life, and it, if it's going to last all the days that we live together on this earth, then that permanence needs to be respected. And so how do two people know that they can be faithful to each other for 20 years, 30, 50, 60, however many years, whatever the, 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 the number might be, to be faithful until death to this one individual? The, uh, the concern that we have sometimes is for young people not yet married. We want to urge them to be careful. Be careful who you choose and how you choose. And understand your heart's not the only one that needs to be searched in this matter. You need to search your, your beloved's heart in this matter. And let the truth and let spiritual benefits rise to the top in, in, in the line of what's most important. Because you, we've got to get this right. This is a critical matter in our, in, the, in our own relationship with God. The question is, what can you say to people to help them understand not only the permanence of marriage, but how to accomplish that faithfulness for a lifetime? And so we're going to talk this evening about counseling couples for lifetime commitment. How do you, what do you say? How do you tell people what to do so that they can be sure that they will be faithful for their life? Uh, we want to help people to be faithful to God before they're married so that they can make proper choices as they choose a spouse. But secondly, these principles need to be held on to during the marriage and as they grow, as each one in the marriage grows in marriage. And these principles need to be remembered the days and the weeks where we find ourselves struggling in our marriage. You know, the, the failure is not that, that trouble comes along. The failure is not that we, we get aggravated or frustrated with each other once in a while. The problem is what we do next. And we can do what's right and best, or we can make something worse. 
There are some things that we can talk about that will help us to make good decisions, that will help us to know how to direct ourselves through our life. And so we're going to look at seven principles uh, that I think will help us along the way. The first thing that we need, we're at the text, Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is answering a question that is clearly controversial. The question was asked not because these people wanted to know what the right thing to do was. The question was asked because they knew no matter what Jesus said, they can, they can turn on him and use it against him. If marriage is not allowed, and that's what uh, remarriage is not allowed, and that's the way Jesus answered, that uh, you should not. And they said, well, what, why did Moses write this uh, law regarding a bill of divorcement? If they said that it is allowed, they can undermine his influence by suggesting that he's weak on marriage. It was a controversial question in their day. Do you think about all the divorces back in Jesus' day? I don't know. I always imagine that those families are all intact, that, they, that, that no, there were no problems. And I realized, looking at this again recently, that, no, they were having problems with it. It was a controversial subject. Are we going to stay married or not? This is not a new problem. It's not a 20th or 21st century problem. It's always been the case because it is a challenge. And so Jesus speaks clearly to the law and said that if you divorce and remarry, adultery is, is in the mix. Unless you do that for the sake of fornication. The law has one little, one little area where there's an exception. If I can put away an unfaithful spouse, the scriptures indicate that I can remarry without being guilty of committing adultery myself in this second marriage. There's one other exception, one other means by which we can remarry. You, you know what that is? Romans chapter 7, if your spouse dies. I think it's telling that God tells us that that's allowed. The scriptures specifically say that if your spouse dies, you have the right to remarry. To me, that indicates that that's a tight law. That's a tight rule. No remarriage is the point with two simple, very specific exceptions. Both of which are, are tragedies, right? The death of a spouse, an unfaithful spouse. We're not even sure sometimes which of those two is worse. But only in the case of tragedy of that nature is remarriage allowed. And so what's the point here? In the first, there needs to be a clear understanding of the law. I need, as a person who's getting married or is married, I need a clear understanding that I cannot divorce my wife without being guilty. I cannot put away my husband without being guilty. We're ignoring the one little exception for now. We're ignoring a death issue for now. But other, other than those two tragedies, if those two tragedies don't happen in your life, you're married for life. That's the law. And the reason that we need to understand that more clearly and f- have that firmly established it is divine law established from the beginning of time. When Jesus was asked about if it was right for a man to put away his wife, Jesus said, have you not read? He's exposing their hypocrisy. He's calling them on this ridiculous question. Haven't you read? Who doesn't know the law is is the issue that he's suggesting. This is a simple matter. Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning, made them male and female, the two became one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. The only part of that 
quote of Jesus that's not in the book of Genesis is the part, what God has put uh, joined, let not man put asunder. That's Jesus' words. That wasn't Adam's words or God's words back in Genesis chapter 2. But God said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they become one flesh. What's that mean? That means you can't take it apart. How do you know that's what it means? Because Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man put his son. That's the law. And we need to understand that there is no other alternative. You know what an alternative is? It's an invitation to do what we want to do. If I can find some way to justify my divorce, if I can find some way to make this separation uh, appropriate and spiritually all right, maybe not the best, if I can squeak through a, a, a loophole, then I've always got that there at the back of my mind. It's haunting me. When days aren't good at home, well, you know, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. When days aren't good at home, you need to make them better because you, you're not going anywhere else. This principle is so important to understand that the law says what the law says. It means what it means. And we need to accept the responsibility of permanence in marriage. That's what the law is about. And so that's the only thing we're really considering in this series is that we will be married for life. That's the promise. That's the command. And that's our promise to each other. And then that's the life that we're going to live. That's so important. The the absolute character of the rule provides a stable foundation for God's people. We're standing on this rule, this law that says we stay together for light. There's no, there's no possibility for divorce. There's no circumstances that I even want to think about that uh, would make any difference. Mine is not a special case. It's not different for me. It's not, yeah, but in my marriage, something else is going on. No, the the law is the law. It's divine law. The consequences and the condemnation are certain. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable, honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We're either in an honorable marriage or in or we're in sexual immorality. And we need to stand for what's right. And as we Finish this point, this clear understanding, and and don't mess with it. Let it say what it says and live under that obligation. Accept it. That's marriage. Um, We need to do that because we don't want to give ourselves an out. There isn't one, and I sure can't make one up. Let's go a little bit further and look at a, a second idea, and that is that God's laws are always for our good. Uh, actually, the Lord says, therefore, our good always. And I think that puts an emphasis on always. It's for our good always. A law that doesn't seem good, don't worry about it. It is good. It's, it's in your best interest. This instruction, I don't understand what the point is. One day, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But you can believe that it is for your good. And that's what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. As the law is being delivered... Uh, as the law is being delivered, 6.24, right. Sorry. As the law is being delivered, 
God is trying to convince his people that he loves them, that he cares for them, that he wants good things for them. And he speaks of the promises. He speaks of his protection. He speaks of all these good things. And so he says in chapter 6, 24, the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. These laws are for our good. The permanence of marriage is a benefit to us. Practically speaking, lifelong permanence provides some things that anything less denies us. Permanence makes marriage marriage. That's what the word means. And I don't know about Webster, but I know that's what marriage means because we talk about marrying two things, two objects, uh, two ideas, and when they marry, you just put them together, and now it's not two, it's one. Don't we use the word marriage that way? You marry things. Uh, When you're bonding and blending and building, you marry two objects together, and they are going to stay that way. And that's because the marriage relationship is an example or an illustration of that permanent cohesive existence of the two that have become one. Permanence is real and lasting benefit, but it has to be for life to work. I'll love you forever. That's that's wonderful unless it's not true. Right? You take away the, the essence of what marriage is if it's not permanent. Compare the absolute commitment of marriage. Picture that. Here's a marriage. It's absolute commitment for life. Compare that to a uh, marriage that is conditioned. If. How does it look? Which, Which marriage do you want to be in? The one that is conditioned or the one that is permanent? The one that is we're going to measure and reassess every couple of months or years or whatever. Or the one that says, I'm here. I'll be here. I'll never go. That's the nature of the marriage relationship before God. In marriage that is permanent, we put all our eggs in one basket. I don't know if anybody remembers, remembers that, that uh, expression or not. Do you know what it means to put all your eggs in one basket? You go out to gather the eggs. You carry a basket and you put all the eggs in. If you drop the basket, what happens to all the eggs? Well, they break. They all break. And the the idea of the illustration is that you can save some of them if you've got two baskets and you only drop one basket. But but in marriage, you you don't do that. You don't diversify. When do we diversify? We diversify investments. Anybody know about investments? Okay, maybe that's better than eggs. We diversify investments because what? You don't know whether they're going up or down. There's no guarantee. When there's no guarantee, what do you do? You diversify. So no matter what happens, you don't lose everything. You lose something when you diversify and you lose some. But you hope you don't lose everything. Marriage, you don't need to diversify. You don't diversify because that is is an indication of lack of trust, of confidence. And when you take trust and confidence out of this relationship, then we've got no peace and no haven, marriage must be certainly permanent in order to be what God intended to be, a place of confidence, a place of peace, a place of trust, 
a place and maybe the only place in your life where you know what tomorrow's going to be in this marriage relationship. We know what next year is going to be in this relationship. Do you want to compete with the rest of the world and whoever and whatever might be available for the rest of your life? Or do you want to find somebody that says, I like you, I love you, I want you, I'll marry you. And you feel the same way. I choose you and I'll marry you and we'll be together forever. And it doesn't matter what happens to our looks or to our figure or to our bank account or to our health or anything that we'll be together. It's, it's the one thing we hold on to. When God says it, these laws are for our good, I see that is for our good. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to be. And all the joys of marriage rests on this one rule of permanence. If you take away the permanence of marriage, it's not, it's not what God meant it to be for us. There's an uncertainty, there's a question, there's a wonder, there's a suspicion. Maybe not every day, maybe not all the time. But we don't even contemplate those when we're two people who have committed to one another. These laws are for our good. Number three, we need to visualize and actualize two becoming one. How do you, how do you help a couple to stay married for life? How do, what do you counsel? Well, one of the things I want to tell them is... You need to picture yourself as two people right now, and when you marry, you will be one. And we know that that's not biologically, that's not uh, uh, literally. It's one in nature, one in association. It's one as the Father and the Son are one, two in one, three in one. The Holy Spirit is one with them. As the body of Christ is supposed to be, Many members, yet still one body. A marriage is two members, but one body. You need to visualize yourselves as a unit and behave as an actual unit uh, in every respect. There's no competition, no yours, no mine. There's uh, a realization that communication now becomes the lifeblood of this marriage relationship. Because your hearts are beating together. And I'm not talking about the romantic feelings. I'm talking about life. Life is now one life. We live it together. It's one life. And so there's got to be communication. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Where are you going? What are we doing here? And you talk and you talk. And you complain. And you question. And you argue a little. But all of it is in this process of maintaining the oneness that you have as a married couple. One can never wonder if the other will, will go somewhere else. The communication holds them together. Hearts and minds, uh, there must be trust and love and humility enough to speak your heart. And so communication can be a problem. You need to work on that because you have, to, you have to know your spouse. And you have to let your spouse know you, where you are and what you're thinking. Permanence is two becoming one. And then we need to accept that divorce is an act of violence. Things aren't good in the marriage. The marriage seems all, you know, we do this. We, say, we, we, we don't like our situation, whatever it might be, and suddenly everything's bad about that situation, and everything is good in, in the solution. 
You're going to change jobs? Fine, you can change. God lets you change your job, I guess. And so you're looking at, at your job and you've got some problems. Things aren't going well. You're not sure how this is going to turn out. You start looking, you start looking over, the, the, over the fence and over to the next uh, business park. And you start putting your resume together. You're thinking about moving on, finding something else. We can't do that with marriage because it's not a business arrangement. We've got to accept that it is a destructive act. Now, that's, that's not usually the case with a, a change in jobs. Because of the nature of the relationship. Two become one. Now, when you take half away, you leave half behind. That, that's, that's, a, that's a different equation. That's not just to stop deciding two minus one. It's the tearing of apart. Let's read in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And this is the second thing you do as Malachi is speaking of the sins of Israel. Here's the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. We understand what that is? Because of whatever's causing the tears, because of what they're doing, the altar where they bring their offering is no longer a place where that offering is acceptable. They've lost their relationship with God. Verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your, and your wife by covenant. But did not he make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none dwell, deal treacherously with the, with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied the Lord? Divorce had been so much a part of the lives of the people of Israel. Now, we don't, I don't picture that. But the Bible tells us it's there. That God is fed up with it as, as it exists in a nation of people. This isn't just an isolated case here and there that calls for the prophet Malachi to, to write his prophecy about that. This is a description of the people who've lost their commitment to their spouse, whose word is no longer, is no longer trustworthy, and who are committing the violent act of divorce. We need to admit that divorce is violent. If it's going to happen, we need to, we need to consider what the results will be. But see, when we're one out of one situation and we, we, we imagine the other is all good, it's, it's all wonderful. Over there, it's all blue skies. And everything here is so terrible. And divorce will only be better for everybody. Isn't that what the world says? It'll be better for everybody. It's better for nobody. The Bible indicates it's better for nobody. Let's think about it. Who do I hurt? I hurt my spouse. It hurts a little four-letter word. I deeply hurt. I injure. I shed blood, so to speak, as we read in the prophecy. I hurt my spouse. I devastatingly hurt my children. My in-laws are torn up. My parents are torn up. My brethren in the church, they're not sure what to do. 
It's confusing and distressing for every brother and sister in Christ. The violence that we're talking about, that list could go longer, I suppose, but the violence that we're talking about in the family is emotional and mentally destructive. And the world says, children are tough, they'll get over it. They adjust and they survive. And they live with problems in their own psyche the rest of their lives. We hurt our children. It's, it's a violent, destructive act, divorce is. And that's the way God describes it, with the shedding of blood. You, you shed blood on my altar. How I, when have I ever done that? You divorced your wife. And you've ripped her heart out, and you've cut your children, and they're bleeding. And it's, it's uh, this treachery of divorce, it steals peace. This is what it takes away from people all around us. It steals the peace. It steals my children's future. What would have been their future is gone. It steals the history. There's a whole history that we don't talk about anymore. There's friends and family and people and holidays that we don't reminisce over anymore because, well, you know know what happened. So we lose holidays and we lose money, least important of all these, but we do lose money. And we lose family. And in all of this destruction, I make myself a selfish, violent person. And it's changed me too. Because I used to be trustworthy and I used to be somebody that my family could depend on. And now I'm not. This is a depressing lesson. It'll get better in the series, I promise. But it needs to be. I I think we need to see some of these things. If, if I am contemplating divorce now, if I'm kind of toying with the idea or wondering, wonder what that's, maybe that's the solution. Think about it. It ain't the solution. It's destruction. The potential for good or evil, and for both of them, the potential for good and the potential for evil in a family is so big. And we are building the lives of our children. We're determining the future of our spouse. And it can, it can be wonderful, and it can be so terrible. It can be so terrible that once done, can never be good again for some. Let's go to number five. The commitment to right is the guarantee. So now we're back to the question is, so how do you guarantee... How can I guarantee that my marriage will be permanent, that it will be for life? Good couples, you know, we know good couples that have split up. Uh, Is there no guarantee? Attractive couples, we think good looks will hold marriages together. And uh, it doesn't take much looking very far in any direction to realize, no, uh, I guess it's it's equal numbers. I haven't done any census or, or, or counting, but... I think there's as many beautiful people as there are not so beautiful people divorced. So that seems to have nothing to do with it at all. Because beauty and good looks and romantic feelings, the romance that we feel, especially in the courting stage, the physical attraction that we feel, the money that may be involved if we marry this person, the fun that we have, the power, positions of power that we will get, all of these kinds of things. Uh, 
the success of this individual. He's so funny. She's so funny. She's such a, a laugh and such a good time. Everywhere we go, we have fun. Uh, good sexual lives. Uh, these are no guarantees for success in marriage. None of them. In fact, all of them together do not guarantee permanence in marriage. The only thing that will guarantee that is a godly commitment. All these good things are not a guarantee for success of marriage because they change. Sometimes they go away. Sometimes you lose some of those beautiful, wonderful things. But sometimes they just don't seem that important anymore. Sometimes it's not a matter of losing them. It's just a matter of losing interest in them. So those things are not the guarantee. The guarantee, again, a godly commitment to permanence, it is the guarantee, and it is what will enrich all those other things to make them worthwhile blessings and benefits in the relationship. Enjoy the fun. Enjoy the romance and the sex, and enjoy the the money that you can share as a couple if you're blessed in that way. Uh, The uh, beautiful family pictures. You know, some of us take beautiful pictures. In fact, if you've got that blessing like I have, enjoy it for all you're worth. But that's not what will hold you together. What holds you together, the only guarantee is the integrity of the promise that you made. Think about it. What keeps you and what keeps your wife? Well, I love my wife or I love my husband. I would never leave him. You dig deep enough, you find out it's, it's because of what you have built together and shared together and what you've promised together. It's the togetherness itself and the commitment in that. That's the reason you'll never leave your husband or your wife. It's wrapped up in the promise of the permanence of what we make when we marry. We become one. That's the only guarantee. Again, it's the permanence itself that strengthens and makes everything else better. It's not that these good traits, good looking, good job, makes the marriage better. If you've got a good marriage, a faithful marriage, where you respect and commit and love each other and hold on, nothing's going to tear you apart, then he'll make plenty of money. Whatever it is he makes, it'll be plenty. And he'll be plenty good looking enough. And she'll be funny enough. All those things will work if we have the commitment. You know, some people stay together, but they don't take care of each other. I I do think that sometimes people are are so bound by the promise that they'll never divorce, but they've quit trying to be one, quit trying to make a good marriage. They're just existing side by side. That's not satisfying, and that's not what we're after. It's not what this lesson is supposed to uh, help you with. However, what's worse than staying together because you promised before God that you would What's worse is divorce. It'll be worse. And we can deny it and ignore it and turn our back and walk away and and play games and and make everything seem wonderful. We can create that aura if we want to. But in our conscience and looking back, it's, it's not better. It would have been better to hold to the promise and tough it out And be the man or be the woman that God wants you to be. That is more satisfying than the other. Nobody will admit that, but that's what I say. Six, 
I need to be the spouse that God calls me to be. I'm not going to say too much on this one because we'll talk about this on Sunday. But being the spouse that God meant for us to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll just read the paragraphs. I want you to think about this as a person uh, using these instructions to be the best spouse they can be. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even, even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, and that fear would be of him, of God, yes, of course, but the chaste conduct and fear here is respect. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, former times, the holy women who trusted in God were also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Look at 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. The power of, of being the right person in the marriage, the wife, you have tremendous influence on your husbands. An unbeliever becomes a believer, not because you preach to him, but because you were the kind of wife God wants you to be. That's what the paragraph is saying. And husbands, husbands, you understand your wife. We need to quit saying, I can't understand my wife. No, shouldn't say that anymore. Don't say, I can't understand my wife. I don't understand my wife. And then do something about it. Figure it out. Ask some questions. But understand your wife and live with her in a way that honors her. And what we will have then is a permanent weather. Being the spouse that God calls it to be will help us to be permanent in our marriage relationship. One more. Last one for tonight. Number seven, we need to choose in spiritual wisdom. Not everybody in the assembly is married yet, and so... You are looking forward and, and trying to figure out, so how do I make good decisions? And in particular, this one, how do I know he'll stay with me for my whole life? How do I know she will stay with me, commit to me, and be faithful for a whole life? How do we know those things? How can we know those things? How can I be sure? Let's start. How can I be sure that I will love and be faithful until death? Let's turn back to Malachi again, to chapter 2, uh, verse, just verses 10 and 11. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we de deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which, is, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and being aware. In Malachi, before he says you're, you're, a, you're condemned because you're divorcing, before that he said you guys are condemned because you're marrying wives to a foreign god. These are idolatrous women, and as, he, the, as the Israelite marries this woman, takes her into his house and into his home, seeks to please her and be a good husband to her, accommodates her God. Why does, she, why does he accommodate a false God, an idol? 
because he wants to have a good marriage. And God condemns them because you're not going to get a good marriage from a pagan wife. Yeah, we do need to make a good choice. If we want permanence in our marriage, we've got to try by beginning with a good spiritual choice in the choice of a spouse. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that she will love me the rest of her life? Are you so sure that you're going to love her for the rest of your life? We need to assess and, and check both hearts. How can I be sure that I will love her or I will love him? For the rest of my life. No matter what happens. Good times and bad times. I think we need to spend less time evaluating the nature of the relationship in this sense. And realize that we need to find out about this person. Who is this? Who is this person to God? What is their relationship to God and to God's people? What is their relationship to spiritual things? Those are the kinds of questions that we need to ask. And I've got to ask myself the same questions. Am I worthy of her love? Can she trust me? How does she know that I'm going to be faithful for my whole life? She needs to know all about my spiritual life and my faith and my commitments and my sacrifices. And so how do I know both hearts? I need to know my heart. I need to know her heart or his heart, whichever. And so we've got to be very critical. And I'm not talking about being critical with words, critical of each other in, in talking to each other. I'm talking about in assessment, in our investigation, in our thinking. I need to listen, listen to words and listen to tones and listen to, listening to, uh, to proud, boastful statements. I need to listen to wishful thinking. I need to listen to, the, to, the, to polite speech. I need to listen for any kind of ugly speech harsh words, short temper, both in him or her, whoever we are. We need to listen for them in ourselves. Hopefully we're already doing that, growing in Christ. But now we need to do that. We need to find somebody that is, as the Lord calls, a help suitable or comparable, somebody that fits my life as a child of God. And so I need to be very critical in thought the point is not to criticize and, and accuse and to insult this person that evidently we care something about if she's under consideration, if he's under consideration. But we've got to be objective and we've got to be critical. We've got to be honest. I can fix that or I'll help him overcome that problem. Or, you know, that's the way he talks to other people, but that's not the way he talks to me. He never treats me like he treats them. Uh, she, she, really, she really is interested in spiritual things. I've seen her pray one time. We need to be honest with ourselves as we make the assessment. And we need to be, hold on to this critical attitude of assessment and watching and waiting for how long? Until the day you marry. When you promise that you're going to stay with him, stay with her for the rest of your life. And it doesn't matter how they behave. You're going to do it. If you're going to do what God wants you to do, you're going to be faithful to him. You're going to be faithful to her no matter how he treats other people and no matter how he treats you or how she treats you or she seems so materialistic. I never noticed that about her. That's too bad. You should have noticed that about her. He's too, he's too in, into expensive cars. 
she likes nice clothes. Well, that's not all bad. Nah, this is excessive. All these things, we, we, we critique and we assess and we think and we measure and we be honest to realize that it's not fair for me to mar- marry someone that I intend to turn into somebody else. For the most part, you can't do it. But for the other part, it's not fair. Unless you just tell them that. But when you marry, then you accept and you embrace. Uh, In uh, Ephesians chapter 5, I don't have this one on the chart, but in Ephesians chapter 5, interesting wording there talking about how the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And so this is the counterpart of that ugly assessment, critiquing kind of uh, session that we've had over the last six, eight months. Now we're married, so what do we do? Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water and the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless without without blemish. So you present her, your wife. Let's, Let's go back to the wife the husband is, loves his wife, and so he presents her to himself, like Jesus presents the church to himself. How is that? A glorious church. That means I hold on to her as a glorious wife. She needs to stay glorious for the rest of your marriage. In your eyes, she is glorious. Is the church a glorious thing? There's a spiritual sense in which we think, but the forgiveness, but look at us and look at our behavior day to day, week to week. We're not so glorious. We're messing up now and then and over again. We've got some secret sins. We've got weaknesses. And there's times when we don't have a commitment like we ought. We're not all that glorious, but Christ presents the church to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or, or any kind of blemish. That's the way we look at our wives when we marry them. We've accepted them into our embrace. And in this relationship, you are the most beautiful woman in the world. You are the kindest woman in the world. You are the most worthy woman in the world. And I will hold on to you for the rest of my life. So once we're married, she is a glorious bride. And he is a respectable man. And that's the way we need to react. We need to choose in spiritual wisdom. And so we need to be, we need to assess and be critical in our thinking. Why are both of you doing this? That is getting married. Why, Why are both of you getting married? Do you know why she wants to marry you? Do you know why he wants to marry you? Ask, ask the question. I don't mean just because I love you and, And our honeymoon is going to be great. No, but yeah, but that doesn't have to be me. Why why me? Why me? The husband asked the the same thing. Before the marriage, the the potential husband asked. This takes time and circumstances. We watch each other in everyday life and get to know one another. And so in that sense, we have to know. Because bottom line, we don't know that she will be faithful her whole life. And he doesn't know if he will be faithful all of his life. 
But today, and for all the days leading up to this, there must be every indication that that is the case. And then we hold on and we need to grow in that. What's the guarantee? What was the guarantee back up there? Which is it, uh, number five, the commitment to write is the guarantee. So what are we talking about here? We're looking for a person, and we're trying to be the person that is committed to be a faithful Christian their entire life. And now, that begins with the way I treat my spouse. That's the way it's got to be. And how do I know that I will do that as a husband or a wife? Because I've done it in every possible way as a son, a daughter, as a friend, as a student, as a, an employee. I've been loyal and faithful. I've been right. I don't lie. I'm kind. I am the kind of person I need to be. And I think you'll see as we continue through the, the, the rest of the five lessons is that this study is going to say more about the character and behavior as a Christian that we need to become that that is really going to be the solution to the, to, the, to the marriage issues that we face and help us to grow and be what we ought to be in the marriage relationship. So you're not just looking for a Christian. You're looking for a devoted Christian who would never break their word, even if it was given to their worst enemy. True to his word. True to his word, to his own hurt, we say. Honest and kind. You're looking for a hero of a man and uh, a prince of a woman, and that's in their character. And that's what you're looking for, and do not rush, do not rush through the process. I hope this has helped us to understand the uh, importance of permanence in marriage, but also how we, can, how we can ensure it, at least the best we can. But what really matters then most of all is, do we already have a relationship with Christ? Are we children of God? And we need to get that in place first. Married or single, if you're not, tonight's a good night to to settle that score. To become one with Christ and to be part of God's family. Confess your faith in Jesus as the one who died for our sins, who was raised by the power of God, so that he could give life to all of his disciples, eternal life. And uh, if you have not yet stepped into the light of Christ's love and grace and mercy in obedience to the gospel, why not come to the front and express your desire to do that as we stand together and sing our invitation song.